I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We are studying through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel with a special eye on King David as a man who follows God with all his heart. Because this year we want to, as a church family, we want to grow in seeking after God with all our heart. We want to be better seekers of God. And so we've been looking at his life. And today, with no exception, we find a great example um, from the life of David about what, what worship looks like and what it needs to look like in our hearts. But this chapter contains a thing called the Davidic Covenant, the covenant that God made with David. And you can usually tell when things have kind of a special name, the Davidic covenant, that these are pretty theologically rich um, and deep matters that have been intensely debated by really smart folk for a long time. And uh, today's text, in fact, entire systems, good systems of evangelical theology um, have kind of divided right at this point. I'm thinking of the older systems, uh, older versions of covenantal and dispensational theology. This is a dividing point for them, if you're familiar with that language, at this text. I remember being in seminary, and I could have swore that the guys who didn't think like we thought were our enemies. And lo and behold, they're my brothers in Christ, I find out later when I've escaped from seminary. They weren't the enemy, after all. Um, So my role today, uh, as we deal with these kind of theologically rich matters, um, I think is like the role of Sherlock Holmes with his good friend Watson uh, when they went camping. They are, had a good meal and lay down for the night and they went to sleep and some hours later Holmes awoke and he nudged his faithful friend Watson and says, Watson, look up at the sky. Tell me what you see. Watson replied, I see millions and millions of stars. Holmes asks, what does that tell you? Watson ponders for a minute. He says, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is omnipotent and we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I suspect that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. He asks Holmes, what does it tell you? Holmes is silent for a minute, and then he speaks. He says, Watson, it says to me that someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) And so, in the midst of great and lofty debate, meaningful debate about some of the long-range futuristic implications of the covenant of David today, my role which I think I'm probably best suited for, is simply to say, someone has stolen our tent. That is to say the obvious, the simplest things, and I hope those will be the most important things. As we wrestle with a text that really helps us answer the question, why are we here? Why do we do this every week? Why all this trouble? Um, Because last week we saw that how we approach God matters a great deal. Jeff taught us, Um, in the text from the previous chapters, um, approaching God wrongly cost a man his life as he um, mishandled the ark where God's presence dwelt. 
So today we want to ask questions like, why bother worshiping God? And if it's worth the bother, how do we do it in a way that really delights and honors him? So if you've got your Bibles open to 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'd like to pray for us and we'll we'll dive in. God, I, I pray that my simple understanding of the matters that before us would serve your great purposes. That you might help us together as a people grasp the most important things in a way that causes us to honor you with our worship in ways that we have not before. So, Lord, compensate for my lack today and take us into your scriptures in a way that really only you can do. In a way that changes us to be worshipers, seekers with all our heart of our great and wonderful God in whose son's name we pray. Amen. Okay. After the king was settled in his palace, this is King David. Life has been a wreck for God's people. They've been chased. They've been pursued. They've been embattled. And now King David finally has time to build a palace, settle into it, because the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. And he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. So David looks at this beautiful house that he has built and then he looks over where the ark of the covenant is where God's presence manifests itself to his people. God's in a tent. I'm in a fancy house. Something wrong with this picture. And so Nathan says, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you. David has an idea. He wants to do something for God. He wants to build God a house. And it sounds like a pretty good idea. Nathan seems to be on board. In fact, later on, we'll find out from David's son Solomon that God thought it was a good idea. It says, my father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, You did well to have this in your heart. It's not a bad idea, but God had a different plan. In verse 4, it says, That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet, saying, Go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God speaks through Nathan to David and he declines David's offer to build him a house. He says, David, you're not the one I've chosen to build me a house, and I've not requested a house from anyone. And then he paints this portrait of himself as moving around in a tent with the people of God. As they've been moving, God has been there with them, identifying with them in their suffering, in this humble tent that God's presence has shown itself in. But in the following verses, God helps David's perspective through this whole matter. He says, Now that tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you 
wherever you have gone, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. So the focus now is not on what David wants to do for God, but God is now reminding David of what God has done for David. It's all, I took you, I've been with you, I cut off all your enemies. And he reminds him of his past and how God has blessed him in his past. And then he says, now let me tell you about the future, what I will do for you. I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you, David, rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, David. So David says, God, I want to build you a house. God says, no thanks. I'd rather build you a house, David. He says, David, I want to give you a great name. I want to give you a place for God's people, a land. I want to give them rest from their enemies. But I want to make you a house, David. Not a house made out of wood, but a house as in a dynasty, a lasting legacy through your descendants, God is essentially one-upping David. David offers to do something to God, and God says, no thanks, let me do something far more incredible, far more amazing for you. What a wildly generous God we have. Continues in verse 12. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. So David's going to have a son. That son's name we know as Solomon. And Solomon will, in fact, be king after David. He is the one. Solomon will build a house for my name, God says. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, David, your kingdom, God says, will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. God wants to build David a house. Not just any house, but a lasting dynasty, a legacy. It's going to last forever, Three times he emphasizes that your house, your throne will last forever. And David is stunned by this. Not only does his son get to do the thing that David wanted to do to build a temple for the Lord, but now his legacy will be everlasting. Um, His throne will last forever. And the way that happens as we read through the remainder of the Bible, is not through an endless succession of kings, but a succession of kings that ultimately leads to one king who will reign forever. It leads us to the Messiah. See, this prophecy connects the house of David to the Messiah, and that's why as soon as you open the New Testament, first verse in the New Testament says, it's a record of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. 
The New Testament presents Jesus as the one who fulfills this prophecy of the king who reigns over the house of David forever. You pick it up again in Matthew. When the crowds go ahead, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem to be crucified, and they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things Jesus did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Even the children have picked up on the idea that this is this long-awaited son of David who has come to reign on the throne of God forever. Um, So David is now receiving from the Lord far more than what he wanted to offer in worship. It's an unbelievable thing to him. A house that lasts forever. The eternal king of all the kingdoms of the earth, the savior of the world, will be known as a son of David. You know, if you come into my office, I've mentioned this before, you look behind my door, when you come into my office, it's the wall of fame. All the newspaper clippings from all my kids, right? All over the wall, their pictures, all the good stuff anyway. Speeding tickets we didn't put up there, but all the other things, they're up there on the wall. It's the wall of fame. That's my kids, you know, accomplishments. David's wall. You see this if you go to your mom's refrigerator. She's got clippings of you, probably still from high school. When you finally did something right, she put it on the fridge. Still there. If she's got grandkids, their accomplishments are up there. David's wall says of his son, Savior of the world. King of kings, Lord of lords, king of all the kingdoms of the earth. Um, And because we are citizens, as believers in Jesus, we are citizens of his kingdom, all the promises of that kingdom are ours. Many now, many much more fully in the future. And this is the point at which I spoke to you that many uh, scholars uh, fuss at each other profoundly. Um, What does the future fulfillment of these promises to David look like exactly? Um, Are these promises conditional or unconditional? Were they conditional in the sense that Israel was so... Um, disobedient to God, that they were essentially replaced by the church who's now a spiritual Israel and all the promises are fulfilled in us as the church? Or are these promises primarily unconditional such that even though Israel messed up, there is yet a future for Israel as a nation where some of these promises will literally be fulfilled in them? Um, Do these promises mostly have to do with Jesus' first coming or his Second coming is another way that they fuss and debate about it. Um, So you can see these promises shape the way we think about the future in rather detailed ways. Um, But unsurprisingly, in spite of a lot of reading and scratching my head this week, I haven't been able to settle the debate. Um, And I'm not going to be able to unveil the secret to you this morning, unfortunately. Thankfully, these two schools of thought that differ on this, good and godly men are now coming up with new understandings as they move closer to each other and have a more shared understanding of these matters and have stopped calling each other the enemy, at least at this point in time. But my job this morning is simply to point out that someone has in fact stolen the tent. 
And I don't want you to miss that obvious, beautiful thing that God had made amazing promises to David that now belong to us as participants in Christ's kingdom. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then the promise of rest is a promise that's yours. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about that there is a rest that we can enter into. And we think of all these things, their ultimate fulfillment in our salvation and ultimately in heaven. There is a promised land of rest from all of our enemies, from all sin. It waits for those of us who believe. We taste it now, but it waits for us most fully in the future. Um, All of these amazing promises, all of these are ours. We have an eternal king. We're members of an unshakable kingdom. And all of its promises are ours in Christ. Daniel and uh, some of our worst team wrote a song called Yes in Christ. It comes from this passage. No matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. As we are, as we are in Christ, all of this litany of blessings that flow out of the Davidic covenant, they fall into our laps. People like me and you, undeserving people like me and you. Well, David is coming to grips with this, that he has been singled out such that, so much so that the Messiah will be known as his son. And this is how he responds. He goes in and he sits down before the Lord, and you get the idea that he's just dumbfounded by this. And he says, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? All the great things that you've done for me, God. How do I... What did I do to deserve that? He says, if that were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've also spoken to me about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will or to your heart, you've done this great thing and made it known to your servant. See, Worship that is acceptable to God, that thrills God, is a response to God. David just sits down and he says, God, who am I? It's a humble response to God's loving actions and promises on our behalf. He's no longer coming as a great king who wants to do something great for God. Now he's just a humble servant who's amazed at what God has chosen to give to him. David says, who am I? Because he knows God knows exactly who he is. He knows that David is the guy who fled from Saul in fear and sought refuge from the enemies of God. He knows that he's the man who rashly moved the ark of God in disobedient fashion and cost a man his life. He knows that in only a few pages in our Bibles, He's the man who's going to commit adultery with someone else's wife and then have that man killed as a cover-up. In fact, some scholars believe that the story's not unfolding chronologically here, that this covenant is made late in David's life and it's been rearranged to be inserted here so that this covenant God actually makes with David after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and after he has her husband killed. So David now stands here as a condemned adulterer and murderer and he says, God... Who am I? What did I do to deserve this? And so when we think about worship, 
And we think about the fact that now God has chosen us, knowing our past, to be citizens in this kingdom of the Son of David forever, with all of its glorious promises and benefits. Who are we? We're the people who lied. We're the people who've been unfaithful. We're the people who've been worried and the people who take what isn't ours as though we're entitled to it. We're the people who've been proud and selfish. The people who'd rather buy one more thing than be generous. We're people who are angry and unforgiving, who yield to temptation way too often and who are lazy and undisciplined and parent badly and love poorly and ignore God and forget about God and dishonor God and disobey God. Who are we? that God should say, I want you to be my child and I want you to be in my son's kingdom forever. Who are we? Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that you care for him? How do we explain this other than the fact that our God is amazingly loving? Songwriter took a shot at it. He said, Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. I'm a flower quickly fading, here today and gone tomorrow, a wave tossed in the ocean, a vapor in the wind. Still, you hear me when I'm calling. Lord, you catch me when I'm falling, and you've told me who I am. I am yours. I am yours. Who am I that the eyes that see my sin would look on me with love? So, worship, the reason that we're here is because God in his mercy has extended to us all the benefits of the promises that were given to David. They're ours if we believe. And the list of blessings that that entails is amazing. Listen to a few of the things that wait for us and things that we are even experiencing now. In Christ, the Father's grace is freely bestowed upon us. In Christ, we're new creatures. In Christ, we've been brought near to God by his death. Our redemption is in Christ. The forgiveness of sins is in Christ. Our righteousness is in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We have liberty in Christ. We've been sanctified in Christ. We've died to sin together with Christ. In Christ, we will be resurrected. We are heirs with Christ because we are children of God because of Christ. When Christ returns, we'll be revealed with him in glory. And when we suffer, we'd suffer not alone, but with Christ. God knows us so well, and yet he has chosen us and blessed us. And it's a most humbling thing. All you can do is just sit down in God's presence and say, who am I that you chose me? Worship is a response. And it starts with true humility, which then leads 
to praise. David just said, who am I, God? And now he says, how great are you? Oh, sovereign Lord, there's no one like you. There's no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself, to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people, whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people as your very own forever. And you, O oh Lord, have become their God. David now praises God. This is his response to God's goodness to him. He's humbled and then he exalts God as great. Um, and even his comments about Israel and the uniqueness of Israel is really just all about God and all the great things that God has done for his people. It's all about God and it's all about declaring God as great. Um, the next part the third part of David's response is one that's really helpful for us. He says, Now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, The Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you've revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy. You've promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight for you. O sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. I think if you listen closely, you can hear what David's doing. He's praying the promises of God back to God. He's saying, God, keep your word. Be faithful to your promises. Bless according to the promises you've made. May my house continue forever, just as you've promised. The last part of David's response to God's goodness is to pray God's promises back to him. Um, you know, Again, we don't like to be reminded to keep our promises because it usually means we haven't. God loves to be reminded of his promises, not because he's forgotten about them or has failed to keep them, but because it reveals to him that we love his promises and we trust that he is able to keep them. And so God loves it. It's part of biblical worship that we would come and say, God, keep your word. Honor your word in my life. Come do the thing that you've promised to do for me. Worship is a response to the kindness of God in our past and to the good promises of God concerning our future. It humbles us. It causes us to exalt God as great. And then we come in faith and ask for those promises to be made a reality in our lives. That's why we're here. And so this morning, we're going to close our time of worship with an opportunity to do those three things, to humble ourselves before God, to lift him up as great in song, and to pray together um, the promises of God back to him. So first, what I'd like you to do as the worship team comes is just to bow right there in your seat. If, you'd like, if it helps you to kneel, um, you're welcome to kneel. You can slide out to the side or right there. But let's bow before God and humble ourselves before him As we pray together, David's prayer, 
Who am I, oh God? Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you in humility. And we pray together to a man and to a woman as David prayed, who am I that my past should be so littered with your kindness? Though our hearts have been impure, you have loved us purely. And though we have been unworthy and undeserving, you have chosen us. Though we have been selfish and greedy, you have blessed us. Who are we to be called your people? As you bow before God, just express that prayer in your own words silently as you speak to God in your mind and your heart.